We've been following the life of Abraham as a study in a life of faith. This morning, our focus is going to be on trusting God's provision. I think what would be most simple and effective this morning to begin us would just be to read the passage at hand, uh, and then we will um, take a closer look. And so we're going to pick up here in Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. God, it's hard not to read the language of this passage, for there was famine in the land, even for there was severe famine in the land, and feel like we might have a touch point this morning, Lord. We know that we live in hard times, and yet we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that as we look at Abraham in his circumstance, that we would be able to situate ourselves in our circumstances this morning, in a relationship with the God who promises to provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had mentioned to you all in past weeks that as we look at these tests of Abraham's faith, the places where he has to choose between one way and another, between uh, a decision that manifests faith and trust in God and another decision, I had told you that he wouldn't pass every test. And this is one of the ones that he fails, okay? Um, and as we look at this, uh, it's, it's both easy to sympathize with Abram. And I want to, to remind you here that at this point, Abram would fall clearly in the category of what we would call a new Christian, right? He's only known God and only known of God's promises for a couple of months, maybe a couple of years maximum, Okay. Um, I also think we should sympathize with the fact uh, that what he experiences here is not something God specifically addressed. God doesn't tell him, come into the land that I will show you, and if there's a famine, don't worry about it, I'll take care of you. Okay? At best, what Abraham encounters here is a clear implication of God's commitment to him, and not a stated command or promise or truth. 
But it's also important we realize how much is at stake because of Abraham's decision here. Okay? Because of his decisions, uh, first to go to Egypt and then convincing Sarai to pretend that she is merely his sister, he puts his relationship with Sarai at risk. When it says that Pharaoh brought her into his house, as it clarifies later, that meant brought her into his harem. Okay? He's going to keep her permanently as one of his many wives. Okay? And that's not just a problem for Sarah. I mean, bad husband, husbandry, this clearly is. Okay? It's also not just a problem for Abraham, who is about to you know, reap abundantly the fruit of a very bad decision. But it also puts God's entire promise at risk. I don't think we always pick up on that. What is God doing with Abraham? From you and your family, Abraham, I'm going to miraculously give your barren wife a child and you will have a son who will become many descendants and suddenly there's another man involved. Suddenly there's a love triangle. Suddenly God's provision becomes questionable, not just because it may not be completed, but how do we know this is a God thing and not just an awkward thing? It reminds us of the virgin birth, doesn't it? There's an occasion in the Gospel of John where the Pharisees are talking with Jesus and he's criticizing them for their behavior, reflecting their parentage. And he goes, you're like the children of the devil because you look just like him, is effectively what he says. And they say, our parentage is not in question. And if you read it closely, they seem to be nudging each other as they're saying it. They're like, you of all people, mysterious before your husband, you know, before your dad knew your wife pregnant, right? It looks questionable. But here, Abraham puts the entire promise of God at risk okay, by his decisions. So it's high stakes. And the truth is, you all know it to be the case, life is always high stakes. We don't always realize the full implications of our decisions, especially in five-alarm emergency situations. Right? This is not Abraham functioning at his calm and level-headed five-year plan, Abraham. This is, how am I going to put food on the table tomorrow, Abraham? Right? He's scrambling. So, we can sympathize with Abraham. We can understand, we can probably place ourselves in similar places in our life. But also, we can probably recognize those times where we've suddenly discovered that we have buried ourselves in high-stakes circumstances and made the wrong choice. Okay, that's where Abraham's at. That's what happens here. And ultimately, the question that Abraham faces in verse 10, read it with me, now there was a famine in the land. Ultimately, the question is, who is going to provide for Abraham and his family? That's the question. And we face this question on the daily. We always have to think through, who is it who is going to provide for us? Is it me? Am I on my own? Do I have to take care of this? Or is it God? And let me remind you, God has a Bible filled with promises to provide for his people. Jesus says, if God takes care of the sparrows, how much more his children? Jesus says, if you ask your parents when you're a little kid for a sandwich, do they give you a stone or a snake? How much more will your heavenly Father give you the things that you ask? Jesus says, 
the Gentiles pray and seek these things with many words. And he says, but your Father in heaven already knows the things you need before you ask them. Okay. And so we find ourselves in similar circumstances. And again, let's set the stage. Abraham has traveled, being called by the voice of God out into a land that he does not know. He walks into the land, he gets to the land of Shechem, and God says, this is it. This is the land that I will give to your descendants. And he builds an altar and he worships. And he lives in the land and he moves through the land and he builds an altar and he worships. And then suddenly, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. This is the land that I will give to you, Abraham. This is the land where I will bless you, Abraham. And suddenly, this is the land of famine. And not just that, look at what it says in the tail end of verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for famine was severe in the land. Okay? This is, this is one for, you know, the farmer's almanac. This is, this is a severe famine. And so the question becomes an extreme one. And again, God has not said, don't go down to Egypt, but if you keep reading, he's going to say that a lot. <laughs> It becomes almost an anthem in the Old Testament, okay? Eventually, the people of Israel are going to be enslaved in Egypt, and God's going to bring them out, and then he's going to remind them on the regular, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. He says that while they're wandering in the wilderness, and they say, you know what? This manna that you're providing miraculously from heaven is great, but we miss the leeks of Egypt. And God says, don't go back to Egypt. And then he gives them the land, and they're living in the midst of the land, and he says, don't go back to Egypt even to trade horses, kings of Israel. And then, as a judgment upon them, he starts to say, if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from your idolatry, I will send you back to Egypt. And it becomes the form of a judgment. Okay? And so, if you're an Israelite, and Abraham goes down to Egypt, you mentally go, uh-oh. And let's be honest. That's exactly what happens right? This is like the person in a horror film who's reaching for the door handle. We know they shouldn't do it. We don't have any reason to. We've never seen the movie before, but it's a trope, right? Going down to Egypt is a biblical trope. Even if this is the first time it happens, it still fits the pattern. But more importantly, the question becomes, is God's promise so unassailable that it's not threatened by famine? Is God's word so trustworthy that it's trustworthy even to its implications without the fine print, without demarcating every single instance and occasion where it still applies? Is God still faithful? If God has said he's going to give Abraham a son and more than that, make him into a multitude of descendants, does that mean that he's going to make sure he has enough to eat until he has a child? until that child has a child? Okay, these are the implications. And then there's the question of him saying, I will bless you. Can God bless Abraham in a land of famine? These are the questions. Okay. And what Abraham decides, and I honestly, let's give the man some credit, let's be honest about ourselves. I don't think he consciously goes, well, God's promises have failed. I guess I'm on my own. Maybe. 
But I think more likely, he just goes, whoa, we're running out of things to eat. What am I going to do about it? Right? The issue here is not that he denies God's promises. It's that he neglects them. God doesn't enter into his formula. God isn't part of his plan. He runs the equation on what needs to happen, but there is no constant called the faithfulness of God present. And again, I imagine that all of you can relate, right? He makes a decision here to go down to Egypt because he's just doing what is necessary. But in doing what is necessary, he neglects God's promises and his character. Now, let's just be really clear here. There's really no story here where provision for Abraham doesn't involve Abraham's participation. How did God provide for Abraham? Not in times of famine. He works the land, right? He is is a shepherd. He has lots of cattle. He grazes the cattle. He trades for what he needs, right? That's how God usually provides for Abraham. But now the market has dried up. the question becomes one of the delivery systems right that's what's failed and so he turns to Egypt but he's not going well Egypt has resources and will take care of us it's probably just Egypt is out of the geographical range of the famine what he's really turning to is his own resources his own plans his own solving things And it is no surprise, although it might surprise you, that what happens next is a complete and utter moral failure. Okay, we can look at going down to Egypt and say that's relatively morally neutral. Like where this story could have ended is God nudging Abraham and going, hey, come on back. Don't worry about it. I've got you. And that would be on par with Abraham, the friend of God. They have those types of conversations, right? But as soon as he gets to Egypt, he takes another step. And this step's a little bit harder to wrap our head around, isn't it? Because he basically turns to his very beautiful wife and he says, you know what? Your existence puts me at risk. Right? It's a weird thing to say. Here is this beautiful woman he's married to and he finds himself in a dangerous and foreign land. Now let's be clear. Was Canaan a safe and familiar place? No. It wasn't, right? He's living in the midst of the Canaanites. He's living in the midst of foreigners. He's in a brand new place facing these brand new circumstances. That's not that different from Egypt. But something's changed in Abraham. Just just in this little motion, suddenly he's thinking differently. She was just as beautiful yesterday in the land of Canaan. He was just as in foreign territory in the land of Canaan. He was just as surrounded by strangers that he didn't know if he could trust in the land of Canaan. Why now does this become an issue? I would suggest to you that it is both subtle and always true. Here's what it is. It's that faith leads to obedience and unbelief leads to disobedience. I would suggest to you that the reason uh, he makes this poor decision here is because he already made a decision that seemed more neutral. If you will, he's already run the equation without God, 
And that somehow changes the calculus. Since he's on his own, now he needs to do it by any means necessary. Since he is no longer trusting God to provide for him, he's clearly no longer trusting God to protect him. And this need of self-preservation and protection makes him a poor protector. Again, it's hard to read this and see how this is good news for Sarah. What situation is this Abraham going, look, Sarah, I'm really concerned about keeping you safe, so? She doesn't even enter in. He basically says, no matter what happens, you'll be fine, but my life is on the line. He basically says, I would rather keep living without you and lose you. Right? It's just... The New Testament talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And that means a whole lot of things. One of the things it means is that it looks great on the outside, and then you bite into it, and then the stomachache comes, right? Sometimes that's what we mean by the deceitfulness of sin. But here's another deceitfulness of sin. It's deceitful in the fact that it screws with our logic. We do things that don't even make sense. And they don't make sense to the people around you, and they tell you all the time. Whenever somebody does something dumb and you say, well, that's dumb, why did you do that? You're recognizing what I'm talking about this morning. Okay. But is this Abraham going, all right, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do something bad. No. Is this Abraham mad at Sarah who goes, all right, I'm going to punish her? No. This is just Abraham in a place of fear. Abraham, in a place that doesn't include God and his promises on his grid, trying to survive at the cost of somebody he supposedly loves. That is the majority, the majority of the strain in our human relationships. Okay. Very rarely does a spouse come home and go, you know what, I'm going to punish my spouse. No, they come home burdened with everything that happened at work and it just spills into the relationship. Right? But before that, before that, somehow God has fallen out of the formula. And so, he comes up with this story and surprise, surprise, he's absolutely right. Right? When we say that he is wrong here, that doesn't mean there isn't some common sense and some wisdom. He rightly diagnoses the problem. She is too beautiful for safety. And when Pharaoh sees he's going to want, that's amazing. He knows exactly what's going to happen. There's a worldly wisdom here. He knows what the rat race is like. He knows how these things go, and he knows that he is not a strong enough man to stand up against you know, one of the great superpowers of the ancient world, the king of Egypt. There's a wisdom to it. But it's what the New Testament calls the wisdom below and not the wisdom above. That's why Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's the fear that's missing in his life here. He's not afraid He's not afraid of God in the way that he's afraid of Pharaoh. 
He's not more concerned about honoring God with his life and in his decisions and doing the right thing than he is about being afraid of those around him. Why is it that people carry about tremendously strong convictions in terribly pressing times? Why is it that people stand against the external pressures of life or maybe even the attack of stronger people than them and still don't give up on their convictions, don't denounce the Lord, refuse to enter in, you know, and parlay with evil? It's because there's this big, fat constant because there's this more important priority. It's because there's something that has more gravitas in their life than all of these things. Okay, I want to hit this again. Faith naturally leads to obedience because obedience is safe in a life where God is God. Obedience makes sense if God is who he is because we can trust him with everything else. Because we can take the leap and another leap after that because we know that God will keep his promises, so why can't we follow him? We know he's got our back, so we don't need to protect ourselves, scheme, cut corners. But again, the consequences of this decision are dire. His logic doesn't work. He does protect his life, presumably. He does save his skin. Although, let's be honest. Who would be more angry and apt to kill Abraham? Pharaoh who finds out that a beautiful woman is married to a man? Or Pharaoh who finds out that a beautiful woman who he thought was a sister is actually married to a man and is now having all these plagues on his houses? Right? Again, to give credit where credit is due... Pharaoh would be understandable if he deeply punished Abraham for this whole misunderstanding. And he doesn't. He doesn't. This is not because Pharaoh is presumably a good guy. It's because Proverbs tells us that the Lord turns the heart of the king like he turns the rivers of water. Abraham is unfaithful here doesn't change God's faithfulness. And this should be an assurance to you. Not all of you are wives, but all of you know what it's like to be subject to the authority of others. All of you know what it's like for leaders and those in power to make decisions that have direct bearing and implication on your life, and you have to live with those consequences. Have you felt that lately? It's one thing to feel it when things are nice. But what about in the days of famine? What does Sarah discover during this story? She discovers in the midst of Abraham's failure, God does not fail. Again, where does Abraham's decisions put her? In the harem for the rest of her life. And God intervenes. He protects her. He preserves their marriage. Abraham fails as a husband and as a follower of Yahweh, but Yahweh doesn't fail. Now, I like that. I like that a lot, and here's why. 
Because not only have I been in Abraham's shoes, but I've followed in Abraham's footsteps. I've made decisions like this. And sometimes they had big and dire consequences. Is God in heaven going, well, that's it. Guess my plans are ruined. No. Now, consequences are real. Now, strangely, what is the consequence of this whole story? Abraham gets a lot wealthier. Did you notice? The bride price that he receives for Sarah is given to us in verse 16. For her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, male female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, then notice verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abraham walks, about, walks out of this a lot wealthier. It's weird. But one of these female servants is a young woman named Hagar. And it's going to lead to another problem. It's going to lead to another challenge. It's going to lead to another test. And to be honest, it's going to lead to another failure. But there's more involved here than that. Back in the beginning of Genesis 12, we find out that God's plan for Abraham is also God's plan for the world. Do you remember? And through you, I will bless all the nations. Does that include Pharaoh? Does that include Egypt? It does. But what is Abraham, the proto-Israelite, right? The beginning of God's promise to bless the nations. What is his impact on Pharaoh? Plague upon your house. Now, is that Pharaoh's fault? You may not, dis- you know, you may not like the fact that he has a harem, Right? You may not like the fact that he has, ha- has wives, plural. There's plenty of things to be concerned about in Pharaoh, but are his dealings malicious and horrible here? Not really. He thinks he's just acquired another wife legally, socially, acceptably, and then suddenly his house goes to hell. Right? Is Pharaoh glad Abraham visited him in Egypt? <laughs> not at all. This is real stuff. When we as believers have failures of faith that lead to consequences, they're not just conveniently contained to the people of God. They impact our neighbors. My wife and I, when we first got started in ministry, were pretty hand-to-mouth basically all the time. I, to this day, cannot look at a box of hamburger helper because I promise you I've eaten my life share. Okay. And there was an occasion where just through an acquaintance, somebody had asked to do a wedding. And sometimes when I officiate, I get paid. Sometimes I don't. It's not a big deal. Things were tight, but I have a personal policy not to talk about that stuff. It's just not my issue. God's my provider. But here's what happened. I go to this guy, 
and I know he's kind of a loose cannon. The story that led to this marriage is a long and sordid one. He had raised a child with this woman and they had never married. And then when he found out she was diagnosed with cancer, the first thing he did was leave and cheat on her. And then he kind of woke up, realized he was doing the wrong thing, and despite her brain cancer and her few months to live, decided to do the right thing and marry her. Okay? So he comes to her, and I'm going to do the wedding. And he is so verbally profusive about gratefulness and gratitude, he promises to pay me handsomely. Something that switches a switch in my brain, and then I hit an unforeseen bill that is significant. And the wedding goes by, no check, no payment. And I'm looking at the bill, and I'm taking his word, not God's word, and I'm weighing it in the balances, and I start calling him. Hey, you had mentioned that you were going to, doesn't return my call, doesn't answer my call. And I leave him another message. And I leave him another message. And now I'm starting to freak out. And at some point there, I woke up and I went, what am I doing? And to be honest, I have no idea why that guy didn't pay me but I know the burden it was for me to leave those voicemails. Even if he had spoke beyond his ability to pay or circumstances had changed in his life, the pastor who was supposed to bless his marriage was now dogging him for payment. And we all know what that feels like. Was I a blessing to this man? No, I was a curse. And the truth was, this man was not my provider. He could have been a conduit. He could have been the means he could have been the delivery system. But God has always taken care of me and my family. And he could do it with or without this person, and that's fine. But I have to live with those voicemails. I have to live with the dire sound in my voice that made this man who was new to Christianity, new to being around Christians, think that there was no one who could take care of my needs. Again, when we sin, whether it's through deception or through another means, it always begins with an act of unbelief. We say, God won't provide, so I must. We say, God hasn't given me enough to be content, so I must take. We say, God isn't going to be just and bring vengeance, so I must bring vengeance. This is what makes sin against each other so significantly against God. Because it's a denial of his character. It lives as if he is not who he proclaims himself to be. And so there is a seriousness to this. There is an intenseness. But again, even when Abraham fails, God does not. God does not allow this to take place. In fact, he intervenes in surprisingly miraculous ways. I would imagine your mistakes aren't usually associated with plagues. Okay? But again, this is high stakes. This is the beginning of God's plan to save the world. And so God intervenes and he takes care of it. But you know what's even more encouraging? You'd expect God to sit Abraham down here and go, you know what? This is great and all, but I've decided to go another way. 
You haven't been faithful, but I'm sure I can find a guy down the street who will be. God has made promises to Abraham, and he's going to keep them to Abraham. God's grace, his mercy is so abundant that not only does Abraham's failure not derail his marriage or God's plans, it doesn't derail God continuing to love and care for Abraham. It doesn't derail God continuing to use Abraham. And this is despite the fact, by the way, that he will do this again. Okay, this time in the land of Abimelech. But it's the same story. It goes the same way. But God is committed to Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. He didn't send out a resume into the cosmos and say, hey, if anyone wants to use, I'm your guy, right? God chose Abraham. God initiated the relationship. Before Abraham said anything, God gave Abraham promises. And our foundation as Christians is the same. God's love for us, his care for us, his mercy on us, his continuous re-extending of grace, that is all because of Jesus' faithfulness and not because of ours. It's not subject to change. It's not limited by our obedience or disobedience. But if anything, if anything, that's just another incentive to obedience. Let me read a passage to you. This is from 1 John. Here John is talking about the relationship between the God who is light, the fact that we sin, the fact that forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ. And so he calls us here to walk in the light. And if you read this poorly, what you'll read is, God is holy, so you need to live a holy life or else, which is clearly not what John means. Because over and over again, he says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and you make God a liar. The issue here is not if we have problems, mistakes, issues, sins in our life. The issue is, are we going to bring them into the light of God and deal with them, or are we going to pretend they don't exist? Okay. And so notice what he says here. He says in verse 5, This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. Okay. He continues, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now listen to this, okay? What is this whole thing about? He says, sin is real. It happens. You are a sinner. There's an app for that. Jesus died for your sins. The blood is just as available to you today. Walking in the light means bringing those things into God's presence for cleansing. Okay? But notice what he says here in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, you read that first chapter and you go, but isn't that an incentive to sin? 
Doesn't that make sin no big deal? Doesn't it say, hey, don't worry about it. God knows you're a sinner. Just live your sinful life. Everything will be cool. But John is one who knows Jesus personally, who has experienced his love. He says, I'm telling you this as an incentive to not sin as much. I write these things so that you may not sin. Why? Because this is the one you sin against. The one who loves you so much that he's ever ready and willing to forgive. The one who loves you so much, he came up with a way to cleanse you of the weight of your sin, remove your guilt and your shame, expunge it from you, and is committed to do it until death and then eternal life. I'm telling you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and that he wants to fellowship with you in the light because he loves you and that love leads away from sin, not to it. And although it takes Abraham a long time to get this lesson, and although it does have consequences, not just in Hagar, but Abraham's son Isaac plays this same game with his wife. And I will tell you the truth. Nowhere in the Bible, and I imagine nowhere in history, does Abraham sit Isaac down and go, Isaac, let me tell you what I did to your mom a couple of times. But the pattern persists. There's a generational concept there that you can't really get away from. And yet, Abraham does learn. And Isaac, in his own time and in his own testimony, will also learn. And like we saw last week, all the good things God promised will come to pass. And so by the time we leave Abraham, by the time we bury him, he is the friend of God, Hebrews tells us. And he is the father of faith. Again, let me just say, and we see it in 1 John this morning, God is okay with the process. He designed it. He's not as much concerned about where you are right now this morning as he is with the next step you're going to take and the step after that. And there's going to be some missteps and there's going to be some mistakes. But it doesn't matter where you are this morning if you put God back into the equation, then the clear and obvious path will be one of obedience, one of surrender, and one of trust. Let's pray. Father, would you do us this mercy this morning? Would you lay a finger on each of our individual hearts and remind us of circumstances, be them in years past or be them right now, where we are at risk like Abraham, where we are not running the divine calculus that includes you as a faithful and trustworthy provider, where we have gone our own way made our own decisions, cut our own quarters, taken care of ourselves, and reaped the consequences. And would you also give us this mercy this morning and reveal to us your steadfast, committed, loyal love. We remind us that the promises of God are not subject to us, 
and our faithfulness, but to yours. Will you help us to see where we do not see you this morning? The places where we look at our circumstances and like Peter, walking on the top of water in faith, not seeing Jesus, but the wind and the waves. And would you draw our attention back to your face? I pray for us, whatever decisions today and this week entails, Lord, may we make them as if you were real, as if you were present, and as if you were good. Help us to take a step of faith and trust this morning in just the simple manifestations of obedience, of doing the right thing. And we thank you, Lord, that the promise you gave to Abraham grows fully over the centuries into the sending of your son. Not because we asked for help, but because you are a helper. Not because we made promises and vows that you could trust, but because you are the promise maker. Not because we love you, but because you are love and loved us first. As we worship this morning, Lord, may our hearts be full with those truths. We just desire to know you more, to walk with you in the light day by day, and to see your salvation in the land of the living. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.